The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Okay, that's a heavy passage. uh, And it ends in a heavy way. We're going to get to that, but before we do, uh, I want to take a moment just of of personal privilege and fill you all in on something that if if we're on social media together, you probably saw this this week, Um, but uh, my wife and I, our family, has been in the process of pursuing adoption, Uh, in particular adopting a little boy named Theo, uh, who is four years old. Uh, and I want to tell you just briefly about him and about what we're doing, uh, because it was this past Monday when we got the official, um, what's called provisional approval, uh, from China to pursue adopting this particular boy. Um, we've been, my wife and I have been talking about adoption for about 10 years, never really felt like the situation was right or, or one of us would and the other would have reservation. And what happened was, uh, one, we feel like, in our lives, we're in a place where we're um, prepared in a way for, for this. Uh, but two, Theo's a special kid. Um, and he's, he's special. Um, he lives in a foster home in China where all of the kids there have critical heart defects. And um, there's a family in our church, Amanda and David Williams, and many of you have cared for them. They have a boy that they just adopted uh, named Toby. Uh, who had heart surgery and has been in Vanderbilt uh, Hospital since November. Uh, by the way, I saw Toby this week. He's doing great. Uh, he said my name, uh, and it was, it was awesome. The thing you need to know is back in China, Toby and Theo were best friends. And uh, they were kind of you know, foster siblings. They're not blood relatives, but they came into the foster home uh, kind of near the same time. They're less than a year apart. In age, and um, we have all these photos of the two of them with their arms around each other and, and, and best buddies. And, and when the Williams adopted Toby, uh, all of these pictures of Toby had Theo in them. And Theo's adoption file was not prepared yet, and so he wasn't 
really available for adoption. Well, this past November, his file was finished, and, and he became available for adoption. And um, we, just, we just felt like the Lord was calling us to take steps in pursuing that and seeing what would happen and saying, Lord, if this is not what you want, then shut the door. Um, well, he's not done that. And so, so we continue to move forward. Um, he, you know, he has, he has some serious medical issues that he'll have to, that we'll have to work with. We, we live in a great city for that, uh, with Vanderbilt Children's Hospital and the cardiology department that they have there. Um, but we're moving forward. We, we don't really know the timeline, uh, other than to say we would imagine that we'll have him with us before the end of this year, um, maybe as early as this summer, um, maybe not, just depends on things that are beyond our control. Um, but uh, we're, we're moving forward with that, and we're, um, there's another little kid that was, there was actually three kids that were kind of a, a threesome together, Toby, Theo, and a girl named Joy. And Joy was also adopted by a family that we know who lives in Nashville. And so, um, so these three kids are going to, you know, Lord willing, are going to know each other and grow up together. Um, and, uh, and we couldn't be more excited. Uh, you all have responded to us in just some beautiful ways, uh, really encouraging, and so we're thankful. Um, I will, I'll say a lot more about that, over, I'm sure, over time, but I just wanted you guys to hear from me. Um, I, we found out on Monday, and we decided, you know, we need to start telling people and, and going public with this. Um, the only downside with, of that was I didn't get to tell you all first in person, uh, so forgive me for that, but we're, we're excited. Uh, so as we're praying, uh, pray, for, pray for Theo. Uh, he's a four-year-old boy, and uh, he is, um, he's learning this week who we are, uh, and so, all right, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, so today, shifting gears, we're talking about Judas. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about betrayal, and I want to open uh, with just a, a a bit of wisdom from Charles Spurgeon about slander. Uh, because we live in an age that's, that's we, have a, we have an incredible, well, human beings in general, we have an incredible capacity to hurt each other. Uh, and a lot of times we hurt each other and we, we didn't know that we were hurting each other or we, we didn't know how not to hurt each other. But then also we, we kind of live in an age of, of just vitriol and name-calling and belittling and, and it's just, and slander and reputation assassination. And we have the tools to really get in the, the mud, right? There's, there's, a, there's an old saying, don't, don't wrestle with a pig in the mud because you'll both get dirty and the pig will like it. Um, you know, I want to give you a little bit of wisdom and then, and from Charles Spurgeon, and then we're just going to move on from it, uh, but it's too good not to share with you. And it has to do with if you're on the receiving end of having your reputation impugned or you're being slandered and you're wanting to get in the fight and fight, uh, here's what Spurgeon says. He says, in the case of false reports about yourself, for the most part, use the deaf ear. Unfortunately, liars are not extinct, and like Richard Baxter and John Bunyan, you may be accused of crimes which your soul abhors. Be not staggered thereby, for this trial has befallen the very best of men, and even your Lord did not escape the envenomed tongue of falsehood. And here's the wisdom. In almost all cases, it is the wisest course to let such things die a natural death. 
A great lie, if unnoticed, is like a fish out of water. It dashes and plunges and beats itself to death in a short time. To answer is to supply it with its element and to help it on to a longer life. Falsehoods usually carry their own refutation somewhere about them. So, just some wisdom. That if you're being attacked falsely, maybe the best way to deal with it is to ignore it because it will flame out and the falsehood will show itself in that process. I find that encouraging. Um, All right. Preparing this sermon about Judas has been a strange experience. And it is strange every time I talk about Judas. And it's strange for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is because I am reminded that if you were to judge me on the content of my character alone, you would discover that I am far more like Judas than I am like Jesus. And that's, and that's just, there's no escaping that. I know, as do you, what it, what it looks like to play people against each other. Um, and most concerning, I know, what it's, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to betray Jesus with my lack of singular devotion to him. I choose me. I choose, choose me over him in some way, in some measure, every day. So I get uncomfortable talking about Judas. Uh, the other reason I get uncomfortable talking about Judas, and I don't really like doing this, is because Judas betrayed somebody that I love, and I don't really like him. I mean, just being a, being a human being, I'm telling you, I don't like him, I don't like talking about him, and I take what he did personally. Uh, so betrayal is a unique kind of pain, isn't it? It's a, it's a really unique kind of pain. And I'm sure you've experienced betrayal in some fashion or another. And what it does is it, is it, will, it will raise in us a desire to expose the betrayal. It will raise in us a desire for, for, for retribution, for ruin sometimes, to befall the person who is seeking to ruin others or seeking to ruin us. Some of the deepest wounds in this room come from betrayal. And it's a depth of pain that you never imagined possible until it happened to you or possibly until you betrayed. And so it's sacred ground to talk about Judas's betrayal because yes, he's Judas Iscariot, <laughs> but all of us are familiar with betrayal. So this not liking Judas and not wanting to talk about him, I found in my study of scripture, I'm not alone by any means. Um, You get the sense when the gospel writers write about Judas, whenever you read about Judas in the gospels, he's always qualified as the betrayer or the one who handed Jesus over. The gospel writers always include that about him. And their words about him are terse. It's almost like, like a legal brief in which you would kind of expect Judas to be coldly referred to as Mr. Iscariot, you know, just cringing through gritted teeth anytime his name comes up. And some would want to say, oh, we should be more sympathetic about Judas. We should paint him in a more sympathetic light, arguing that if it weren't for him, you know, uh, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross as, as if salvation was somehow helped along by Judas. And, and I get the desire for, for empathy, but scripture challenges us here. You won't find a shred of sympathy for the man in the Bible. Not a shred of it. In fact, in the text that we just read, 
It, it, it told us it would have been better if he had not been born. The Gospel of John, John talks about Judas and said he was doomed to destruction. Jesus himself says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus says this. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So let's, let's not soften up the position to have on Judas because it's a stark one and it's a cold one. What Judas did was miserable. And it was miserable from beginning to end. The, the cloak and dagger slinking into the council of those who offered him 30 pieces of silver. To his later remorse when he gave that money back as though it was a toxin that was liquefying his soul. To his then self-inflicted death that came later that week. Judas arrived at a place where he concluded it was better. It would have been better if he had not been born. Here's what's so searching about Judas's story. Scripture presents him as one who is numbered among the 12 disciples. And yet he's a man who is destined to do the unthinkable. And he's destined to do the unthinkable for a negligible reward, which he does so without, seemingly without a second thought. And no one suspected him. No one suspected him. We see that in today's passage because when Jesus tells his disciples there on the night he's going to be arrested, that one of them will betray him, no one asks, is it Judas? They all ask, is it I? Judas was a person who spent years in the company of Christ and in the company of his disciples and yet never loved him. He never refers to Jesus as Lord. He always refers to him as teacher. He always refers to him as rabbi, but he never refers to him as Lord. Scripture presents a man so close to Jesus and yet still lost. And the words are sobering. And here's why they're sobering. Because that could be a picture of anyone here. That could be a picture of anyone here and no one would know. Because it is possible to live in close proximity to the people of Jesus and to Jesus himself and to never love him, and yet never be suspected of being somebody who doesn't. And so he was a prototype of the false disciple. He was feigning allegiance to Jesus while having none. And so as I'm writing this sermon, it occurs to me, I would be a negligent pastor if I didn't put the question, is this you? Are you, are you like Judas in that? Where everybody would assume that you are a follower of Jesus, you're acquainted with Jesus, that you're a part of the people of God, and yet you know that you don't have really a shred of love for him at all. I ask the question because if that's the case, you're the only person who knows it. 
Judas is a great example of somebody who lives in that community of faith and has none and is undetected. So is this you? I want to look at what John's gospel says as well as Mark's uh, in talking about this night uh, where Jesus has his disciples in the upper room and this, and this betrayal uh, is mentioned because our text occurs then on this night when Jesus is arrested and he's planned this meal. He's gathered his disciples in the upper room. They're together. This is his meal. He's putting this on and they're together. And these men who have been through so much over the span of these few years are gathered around this table And John 13 gives us this fuller account where John says that he sat next to Jesus at that meal. So John was close enough to lean against Jesus. And he talks about this. He says says, uh, that, that Jesus said there was a betrayer in the room and that Simon Peter kind of whispered to John, ask him who it is. And Jesus tells John, it's the one that I'm gonna give the bread to when I dip it. And then he dips the bread and he hands it to Judas and Judas takes it and eats it. What that means is Judas isn't aware that that's going on. The only two people that are really aware that this transaction is happening is John and Peter. And they're watching what's going on. And Jesus dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas and the text indicates that no one caught on to what was happening. Even Judas didn't seem to know that this action was assigned to John and Peter that he was the betrayer. And when Jesus handed Judas the bread in John, he says something to him. And what he says to him is he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. The other disciples didn't know why he said that. There's really no reaction when Judas gets up and leaves. But Judas understood. And I just like to imagine that moment. You know, we need to use our imaginations when we read scripture. Scripture is written in thrift. Uh, there's a lot of details that are left out, but there's a lot of scenes that are put to us that it's good for us to engage with our minds. That moment when Jesus hands Judas bread and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. It's like a, there's a novel in that exchange, right? A novel to be written. Because... Uh, Just imagine that. Imagine Judas taking the bread as their eyes meet and as these words and this gaze just searches him. It's as if Jesus is saying to Judas, Judas, it's time for both of us to finish what's begun here. Imagine what Judas must have seen in Jesus' eyes. Imagine what Jesus saw in Judas' eyes. I don't know what it is, but imagine it. Dorothy Sayers, when she was writing her play about Jesus, the man born to be king, she was struggling to understand what drove Judas. And I love what she says. She asked herself, what did the man imagine he was doing? He is an absolute riddle. He can't have been awful from the start or Christ never would have called him. And he is a riddle, isn't he? You wonder, like, how how was he in the mix? How was he part of this? 
going out when the other disciples went out and proclaiming the kingdom of God and seeing miracles happen and hearing the parables and even performing signs and wonders with his own hand as the disciples did when Jesus sent them out in the power of his name. What drove him? We know that he was greedy. We know that he skimmed off the top because John talks about that in one of those places where through gritted teeth he's telling us about Judas and mentioning, oh, by the way, he liked to help himself to what was in the purse. But here's the thing about the money. The money that the chief priests offered him, 30 pieces of silver, was roughly four months' wages. And that hardly compensates for three years of following Jesus. And so the money itself isn't changing his life radically. But he takes it. So no one can can really say conclusively all that drove Judas, but there are a couple of things that we know. The first is that we know he seemed to be a man who was a devoted disciple. Uh, And he did the same things as the others. Even in the upper room, he had concealed his duplicity so well that when Jesus declared that one of them would betray him, no one immediately pointed at him. They all said, is it I? Because Jesus had taught them about their own sin, right? He had practiced with them confession. And so to look at Judas, you saw a man who seemed to walk closely with Jesus just like the other 11. The second thing that we know about Jesus is we know that though he was destined by God for this role, he also acted under the influence of Satan. Scripture talks about that. Right? John labors to make clear that it wasn't just that Judas was indifferent to Jesus. He was acting in collusion with the devil. John 6, 70, John 13, 2, John 12, 7. Think of all that Judas saw and that he heard. Every miracle, every parable, every act of mercy, every rebuke of the religious leaders. And neither Jesus' words nor his actions ever penetrated Judas's heart. So he was a riddle. He was part pragmatist, part pretender, part conspirator. Maybe even he couldn't explain his own reasons. But what happened was he became what Robert Rayburn described as the archetype of all traitors. Perhaps the most dishonored name in the history of mankind. Still at the time, no one thought he was a traitor. So what do we do with this story? One obvious haunting application for us is to consider that if no one at Jesus' table knew Judas was a pretender, then we ourselves can likely live for long periods of time as pretenders ourselves. Because only Judas and Jesus knew his heart. But another application, and this is kind of a twofold application, is is to see, one, the compassion of Jesus and cast cast ourselves upon it, and then also to seek to model it. Because here you do, you see the compassion of Jesus. How did Jesus deal with Judas? Jesus, Jesus was not afraid to publicly declare the unrighteousness of the self righteous Right? He, he overturned money changers' tables. He, he, could, he, he knew how to make a spectacle if he wanted to. But Jesus was gracious with Judas. He was gracious with him to the end. Even sitting close to him at that last supper, close enough to dip the bread and hand it to him. 
What was Jesus doing? He was leaving the door open for Judas to repent. He was leaving the door open for Judas to repent, and he was protecting his reputation in the meantime. And he did this all while knowing what was in Judas's heart. And in the end, Judas's path took him to where it was destined to go, out into the darkness and into his own doom. But it does raise the question for us, is Christ offering you the bread of reconciliation today? I believe in a God who calls people to himself. I believe in a God who melts hearts. And I believe he's a God of means. And so I ask, is he speaking to you through the example of Judas? Are you troubled in spirit? Do you feel exposed by God's word, by this story? Are you pretending? And is the sense that you have in your heart before God that it's time for you to stop? If so, I have an action step for you. When we take communion later, we have people available to pray in the back of the room. Go do that. Pray. Stop pretending. Because if you are a pretender, there's only two here who know it, you and Jesus. And he's here. And there is grace and there is joy to be found in him. But also know, and hear me say this, this isn't a game. This isn't a game. Judas reminds us, you can sit under solid biblical teaching, spend time with believers, even participate in ministry and still be a fraud, and no one would know it. Being known as a Christian and loving Jesus can be two entirely different things. So is Christ calling you to repent? If so, then do. You can. And then second, how do we model Jesus' compassion? This gets to the question of how you treat betrayers. People who do harm to your name. Do you go on the offensive? Do you air it out in public? Do you seek to expose them, burn them to the ground? Jesus didn't do that with Judas. He did not slander him. He left every opportunity for Judas to consider and to repent. Hear, hear me really clearly when I say this. This does not apply to abusers. If you are abused, being abused, don't be silent about that. That's, that's not what we're, we're talking about here. If someone's abusing you or has abused you, do not keep that to yourself. But Jesus is letting a truth play out here, like what Spurgeon talked about, and that is Judas is slandering him, he's scheming against him, he's betraying him, and Judas's slander and betrayal is thrashing around for a time like a fish out of water, but it has no way to live. In the parlance of our times, Jesus didn't feed the trolls, right? So answering slander will often only add to the lifespan of the falsehood. Plus, in going on the offensive, when we are slandered, we cut short opportunity for repentance. Jesus was careful with Judas's reputation to the end. I close with this. Jesus endured the slander and betrayal of a friend in such a way 
that he left the possibility for that friend to repent. He left that possibility open. And if not, even then still to have his reputation guarded for the moment. As Spurgeon suggests, falsehood often carries its own refutation. It will be seen to be false. And Judas was exposed in such a way that there are few names as widely disdained in all of human history. And yet while all this was happening, while Judas was scheming, while the disciples were trying to figure out which one of them had the capacity for betrayal in their own hearts, which it turned out was all of them, right? Because everybody left Jesus when he got arrested and hid. Peter, his closest friend, denied even knowing him. While all this was happening, never forget this. Jesus was preparing for his arrest. That's what the whole upper room was about. That upper room when he was gathered there and he washed his disciples' feet and he instituted the Lord's Supper and he dispatched Judas and he told Peter, you will deny me before the rooster crows in the morning. When he prayed his high priestly prayer, when he was doing all of that, he was preparing for his arrest. Why? Because he was preparing to lay down his life, which was why he had come. So I want to close with that thought. While Judas is being betrayed, or while Jesus is being betrayed by Judas, Jesus is actively going to his death in order to defeat death for us. Jesus knew what was coming then, just as he knows now. He knew what was in Judas's heart, and he knows what's in the hearts of his disciples, all of his disciples then, and for that matter, now too. And his compassion and his grace always lead the way. When Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus allowed it to happen. He knew it was coming. It wasn't an unavoidable trap. He let it happen. And he did it for your salvation and for mine. Truth prevailed over slander. What Satan meant for evil God used for the greatest good. And so may we learn to rest in that compassion. May we learn to model that compassion. And may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Pray with me. Lord, in that moment, as Judas left to actively betray you, there must have been a sense of finality that he felt in the action he was about to take. And yet, it was like a BB gun firing against a battleship. You were in the process of doing something that he could not stop and inadvertently help facilitate, and that is the redemption of mankind by not only living in our place but dying in our place and defeating the power of death by rising from the grave and then giving us that life, life that can never be defeated when our faith is in you. So Lord, for, for those of us in this room who are pretenders, uh, we know it. Humble us and 
give us a confidence to trust in your mercy and grace as we repent. For those who are considering walking away, becoming a pretender, or abandoning you, remind us of the devotion and the ferocity of your love for us seen in this passage. Thank you for enduring the cross, for scorning its shame, and for giving us life in your name. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.